0: Hebrews, a new and living way. If you're visiting with us, you need to pray for this church because we've been 50 weeks in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We're starting chapter 12 today. The founder and perfecter of our faith, author and finisher, King James. We're using the English Standard Version. The author and perfecter of our faith, you know these verses. We're just going to look at two verses. And I know we have to pick bigger chunks or we're never going to get done. But these two verses stand and sit so well together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those are the people we just studied all through Hebrews chapter 11. Not witnesses in the sense they're standing there watching us. Witnesses in terms of witnesses to faith. Examples of faith. Valid witnesses to what faith is like. Seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us... lay aside every weight. And sin... And then this interesting... Phrase, sin which, which clings so closely. My, what a phrase. And let us, let us run with endurance. We're going to look at those two things. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, these two things, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. I want to look at this phrase because it was years before I gave it due attention. Despising the shame. What, What is that? What does that mean? Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together, church. Your word is precious beyond telling. We have no chance... to grow in grace and faith... apart from your word having a nourishing effect... in our minds and in our hearts. And we need... We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and to make room in our minds. Because it's not just a matter of reading. It's making room for your word and the truth of it in our hearts and lives. And we never move beyond that. And so come and help us. Teach us. Feed us. Correct us. Be gracious to us. As we assemble here this day, I pray in your name. Amen. I think there's a planned kind of uh, progression in these opening verses of chapter 12. Our writer follows the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that uh, instructs us not to waste or, or miss the proper use of those witnesses, those examples in chapter 11. That's his concern. It's our nature to be inspired by examples, I suppose. It's our nature to, as Christians, to want to mimic their faith and their devotion. And, and you could easily jump to the conclusion that these dear souls, chapter 11, especially toward the end, they persisted in faith toward God. And now I'm going to do the same. And that's a good aspiration. Let's all lay down our lives in faith just as Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and David and Samuel did. Let's do that. Come on. And that's where today's text comes in. Is, is, that, what, is that what's next on the agenda? Let's all, there are the examples, there are the witnesses. Now let's be like that. Let's all copy the faith of these early saints. Is that what's next? And he says, well, no, not not quite. Not quite. It's important to note that our text doesn't read, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's copy their faith. While we need to study and know you'll see that in a minute we need to study and know the biblical accounts faith can't, can't just be mimicked there, there, are, there are roots to it but I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit point number one the text begins with a subtle reminder of the roots of fruitful bible study did you notice it? Therefore, since... That word I want to look at. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now before we analyze what's specifically commanded... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. We'll get to that. But before we look at what's specifically commanded in this verse, maybe we should pause and consider what's implied. Our writer assumes uh, our responsibility to to think through our connection to the examples listed. Let, Let us also... Also, a writer is kind of banishing from our minds the notion that, that Bible reading is finished with, with just the reading. Fruitful Bible study only starts with reading. To, to finish your Bible study in the act of reading is to is to finish your road trip with the starting of the car. I mean, you can't go anywhere without starting the car. But just starting the car doesn't take you anywhere. It's just the first step. Now, nothing else will happen without starting the car. It's vitally important, but, but by itself, it doesn't take you anywhere. That's the same with reading the Bible. And that's what that That little word, since. Therefore, since we are surrounded. Think about how we use that word. It's a very um, logical word, since. When I use that word, it always implies something more to come. Since this, well, then that. I mean, the word since really doesn't even stand very well all by itself. Try it yourself in a sentence. Boss gets the people together. They're in the boardroom. People, since we've had a decline in sales... And then he doesn't say anything else. You're left hanging. Well, then what? Since we had a decline in sales... Where are you going with this? What? That that word, since... Is a, it's a word that just opens a door to something else. It's a follow-up word. It's a doorway word. Always leading to something else. And, and that's what our writer expects from our thinking in this text. He's, he's making clear that there's a reason we've been surrounded with this great cloud of witnesses and examples. Since, since there will come times, lots of them... When almost nothing about continuing in faith and obedience makes outward sense. You're going to need these faithful witnesses. That's what he's saying. You will need their accounts since there will come times when two dozen arguments. You know what it's like. Two dozen arguments will just marshal themselves in your mind against perseverance and trust and faith. that's why those witnesses are in scripture he says go go back go back to them since you are surrounded by them surrounded surrounded like a like a fortress around a camp surrounded put them put them all, all around your mind make make them the air you breathe Immerse yourself in them. That list of people. Make notes. What did they do right? What did they do wrong? What did they pray? What did God promise them? What did they have to go through? How long did they have to wait? Surround yourself with those thoughts... Those stories are all there for a reason. It's not just the reading of them. Make the connection. This instruction is repeated so often in the Scripture, it's hard to miss. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. But it's not just instruction like you'd get in a chemistry class. That through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. But it doesn't come just because you read Hebrews 11. It comes from connecting your life with Hebrews 11. 1 Corinthians ten eleven. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. There are others. It's enough verses. Something something living begins to happen when you make connections with the Scriptures. The whole Bible speaks. It's a talking book. It talks to you. And I'm not just using flowery speech when I say the Bible is a speaking book. If you'll take notice, that's exactly the way our writer describes the relationship between the ancient text and his present readers... He specifically says the Bible speaks to them. It's right in this chapter that we'll get to eventually. Hebrews twelve five. Have you forgotten the exhortation that... Look at this. Isn't that interesting? It's not just you're reading it. This, this is addressing you. Don! It's, 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 it's speaking to you. It's talking to you. You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons The exhortation our writer of Hebrews is citing is found in Proverbs and it was written generations removed from his readers and yet he will he will boldly declare that those words from the biblical text I am sick to death of contemporary Christian writers you know who i mean who belittle the inspiration and authority of the Bible. I have had it up to here. The witness here is, this ancient text, he says, it's speaking to you. The connection isn't just knowing and admiring the story of these examples. It's a... It's a, it's a spiritual connection. You see that in point number two. There's an action required. I reworded this point so it might be slightly different that you see on the screen. That's fine. There is an action required to follow in the faith of these Old Testament examples. It's in the very first part of that first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also, so we're involved, and he says, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so so closely. So our writer is pretty careful to explain why many readers find no connection between these great examples of faith and other portions of the Scriptures. No connection between that and their own life of discipleship. They don't get food. They read and they're not fed. They read and they aren't corrected. They're reading but they're not being changed. Why? Why is that? Why do these powerful examples not do what they're supposed to do in some lives? Well, apparently the connection with these past examples... ...and the readers of the text of Hebrews... The connection between them isn't just a mental connection. So I've, I've, I've read these stories. I started off saying this. I've read these stories. Now I'm just going to be like that. won't work. won't work. You, you can't just admire your way into the life of these great saints. No. That won't work. The connection isn't just a mental connection, knowing and admiring their stories. That's a start, and it's absolutely necessary. But the connection itself is formed in a deeper way. It's a a spiritual connection. It's a moral connection. It has its roots in making the same denials of self, um, the same renouncing of convenience, the same exercising of patience the same hard lonely countercultural decisions as these old testament saints made that's where you connect to the power of their examples since we have these witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely so the the very first call In the life of faith. You're going to grow in faith. Develop in faith. um, Abide in the vine. Draw near to Christ. Whatever phrasing you want to use. A fruitful Christian life. The first call in that life is a commitment to uh, denying self-governance. Until that call is heeded there is nothing else you can add that will work. Did I I make that clear enough? Until that call, the denying of self-governance, until that call is heeded, there's nothing else you can add to your Christian life that will make it work. Nothing else will work. We are called immediately to the awareness that, that obstacles to our perseverance in faith, they abound. And most of them... ...cling closely. That is, they're they're internal. They're frequently cherished. They're ingrained. Most of my worst enemies. What makes this challenge so difficult is... ...it's the nature of our fallen condition. It's notice described as as weight... ...and sin. It's like... uh, ...it's not like acne... It's like a deep inward infection in the blood. It doesn't lie lightly on the surface of my being. Like a rash or dandruff. There are sins which our writer says, he's laboring for the right words and he does a beautiful job. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sins which, do you see it? Cling cling so closely. That's the problem, isn't it? They cling so closely that I come to think of them as a part of my normal existence. They don't feel alien when they cling so closely. I, I, feel, like, I feel like I can't live joyfully without these things they cling in such a way that I, I have a hard time thinking of them as anything separate from my true self. That's why that word weight is used. You think about that. He's saying the things that hinder faith in my walk with Jesus are, are it's, like, it's like walking around after a few years with the extra 5 or 10 pounds, right? Weight. Weight. And there's just no way, there's just no way of losing that dropping those five or ten pounds without losing a part of me. It's me. Those those things have have become me. He says, if you're you're gonna look at Abraham and Jacob and you're gonna read these stories and you're gonna see them following Jesus, and you think, gee, I'm gonna do that. That's wonderful. You you don't understand. There are things that are going to make that very hard for you to do that. And there there are things you don't hate yet. There are things you still cherish. There are things you still justify. That's my Don Horman. That's my problem as I look at this text. It might be yours too. We desperately need to understand the depth of this self-denying call. Apparently, there's, there's just no running the race apart from this awareness that we can never afford to neglect examining our heart's loves, our heart's delights. It isn't an easy thing to lay aside something we have grown to treasure. No wonder, Jesus said, it's a lot like pulling your eye out. Or cutting off your hand. You ever read those words? There's an inward tension in Don Horbin that lasts as long as this race is being run. Here's the description of it. It's like, it's like an arm wrestling match that never ends. Usually there are a minute or two and somebody caves in and gives out. But this one lasts as long as you're walking on earth. It never stops. Here's where I get that, by the way. I get that in texts like this, Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against. Are, there's an againstness. In the spiritual life. These are. See it again. Opposed. To each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. This. The flesh. Always. Desires. Against the spirit. Say that with me. The flesh. Always. Desires. Against the spirit. That never goes away. Don't miss. Miss. It's not not just a theological truth. Don't don't miss the the daily application. The flesh, it lusts against the spirit. It pulls, it pushes, it resists, it it, it opposes. There's a gravitational pull to our fallen selves. And And it manifests itself like this. The natural desires for sexual expression will always... Press beyond the scriptural bounds of heterosexual marriage. I've said it before. If no one's ever told you this before, hear it, hear it clearly. God's plan for sex. Before marriage, abstinence. After marriage, faithfulness. And, and the self will always press beyond those bounds. The natural desire for material possessions will, will always overindulge and never relinquish ownership for stewardship. The natural response to persecution will always be to compromise, to save reputation and, and keep friends and popularity. The natural response to wounded pride will always be to strike back... in the name of universal justice. These are the ways... these are the ways... my sin... clings... so closely to me. These are the things... I will constantly have to lay aside. Three. Point number three. In defining the life of faith... as a race... our writer emphasizes... not its start... But it's finish. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Understand the image here. This is not a race the way we normally think of it, this is not a race against other runners who can cross it first. It's a contest to see who can go the whole distance. So each one has a course with with its own struggles, its own challenges, its own pressures, its own joys, its own pains. And the assignment for each of us runners is exactly the same. It's never to take your eyes off Jesus right to the very end of the race. Just look at some of the words. The first important word is that word run. The idea behind running, I think, is just effort. Effort required. Strolling is easy. Running isn't. And so our writer wants to emphasize that no one's going to drift to this finish line. There will come times of trial, persecution, specific temptations... ...that will always require deep, exhausting effort... God will help the weak. He will do nothing for the lazy. The next important word is that word endurance. Let us run with endurance. If running implies effort, endurance implies patience. I take that to mean in my life and in yours... There are many struggles that will last longer than we'd expect. The rewards of continued faith may be slower in coming than I would like. We sang. We sang that song. And I meant to scribble down a little note. Earlier in our worship time, we sang. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. And immediately, here's the way my brain works. I can't help it. As I'm singing that, I'm thinking, I can think of so many areas where it sure isn't my joy to honor Jesus. You ever have somebody really wrong you? I mean, really, really hurt you, damage your reputation. And you know you're supposed to forgive, <laughs> but it doesn't feel delightful to forgive. Is that just me or has anybody else ever noticed any of this? Yeah, yeah. Now, there is, there is a joy that comes from honoring Jesus, but in, and it relates to this endurance idea. The joy you get in honoring the Lord, especially when you don't feel like it at first, in my experience, is never a joy that comes immediately. It's a joy that later on you look back and you think, oh, if, yeah, I wish I'd listened to the Lord so much faster. Because, but it just didn't seem like the right thing to do back then. And then you go... What a fool I was. I'm not denying the reality of joy. I, I'm simply saying it's, it's, you know, it's not like running the race and, and eating chocolate eclairs all the time. There's this endurance required. Rewards come more slowly than we would like. And so patience gets extended in two specific areas. Two specific areas for patience. Trials can last much longer. Rewards can come much slower. So so this idea about fruit, it it never grows quickly. And you remember how Jesus, Jesus made the direct connection between uh, patience and the fruitful life of the kingdom. He said it in that parable of the soils. Let me just read it to you. You don't need to look it up. It's in Luke 8, 15. And as for that in the good soil, the seed in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, listen, hold it fast, in an honest good heart, and bear fruit with patience. That's the same thing as running the race. Running is the effort. Endurance is the patience. Run the race. sloth. And procrastination are easy but deadly. Nothing good will come from slowness to obey. The speed of running is is meant to portray the opposite of delay or excuse. And then endure in the running. It's a longer race than you think. And if no one told you this, a whole bunch of it is run without any applause whatsoever. Four, we're almost done. Continued devotion to Jesus... ...will guarantee your life's highest destiny. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. He is the founder... ...and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him... ...endured the cross... ...despising the shame... And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I just have three thoughts I want to try and go through fairly quickly. Do you believe me when I say that? First, looking to Jesus is not the same as looking back to those witnesses of chapter 11. So those witnesses are an inspiration to my faith. Jesus is more than an inspiration. He is the... Founder and perfecter of my faith. And here's what I think that means. He's the founder of my faith because. He has provided entrance into a relationship. With a holy God. Through his redeeming sacrificial death on the cross. There's something Jesus does. That no good example do. He, he shed his blood for my sins. He bore God's wrath for my sin. He opens the door. We've been looking at it all through the book of Hebrews. He's the founder. He's the founder. Secondly, Jesus alone carries us to the ultimate destination of our faith. So he's not just the founder. He is the guaranteed perfecter or finisher. Alert listeners may have noticed that I left, left out an important phrase when I was going through that first verse. Look at it again, and you'll see the part that I left out. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I talked about that. Let us also lay aside every weight, I talked about that. The sin which clings so closely, let us run, I talked about that. With endurance, I talked about that. This the race that is set before us it's a it's a, it's a, it's an outlined course it's not a random run just for exercise it's not a race of my own mapping we are all each of us following while we race so it's a it's a course that is already Set before us. So Jesus is not only the founder of my faith. He is its perfecter. In this sense. Where, where does this race go? How can we know we're going we to make it? We know. Because the one who became one of us. Fully human. Jesus was as human as you are. The one who became fully human in the incarnation has run this race and completed the race. He's the only one who has completed the race in that sense, though many have died. So our writer's important point is Jesus alone has already become the very first participant in that brand new creation. So his resurrected body, an actual body... See, that's different from my dad passed away. So he's, he's finished the race the way Paul did, like his earthly life. But that's not what this is about. This is about Jesus finished the race in the sense of with a physical body, he is now at the right hand of the Father... The kind of body you will have when it's raised from the dead. He's he's finished the whole thing. He is the first pinpoint of that new creation that's going to come. New heaven, new earth, all of us. And we know it's going to work because he didn't just found my faith with his atoning death on the cross. He has already completed the whole course that I'm still running. So I know it's going to work. Because he's accomplished it. Oh, The new creation life of Christ is as an accomplished fact as his death on the cross. That's our writer's point. He is the founder and perfecter. They're both done. And the third thing, stop yelling, Don. This is the part I want to wrap up with. Because it might not be new to you. You may be brighter than I. I haven't thought enough about this third observation from that passage. To run the race for the finish line means embracing the shame of a Christ-obsessed life. It was a long time before I saw the, the punch of this passage in that second verse. Here's the last text. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And I want to talk about this despising the shame. Because, because the, the writer of our text seems to make, seems to, why would you list that in there? It seems as though there's an, there's an element to the life of Christ and the life of his followers. That needs stressing. And so he puts that in there. Not just the joy that was set before him. But despising the shame. And here's where I want to go with this as I wrap up. There has always been a shame attached. To our Lord's saving words and works. People who will gladly embrace the the moral emphasis in Jesus' teaching, his love for enemies, his beatitudes, his care for the poor and the needy. People who embrace all of those aspects. We'll talk about all those aspects. Resent. Resent the saving work and the words of Jesus about his saving work. They, they, They resent it. Especially the exclusivity that Jesus attached to his ministry. How many watched the funeral for Barbara Bush? Anybody watch it yesterday? It was really, uh, it was well done. Good service. Pastor, Episcopalian pastor, he, he did a very good job. Made the comment, and I guess I know why, because he knows there's CNN and Fox and CBS and ABC and there's cameras rolling and, and I get it. I get it. It's different from this. And he was very specific, saying that Barbara Bush had always, for her, her road to God was through Jesus Christ. Her road to God was through Jesus Christ, which I thought was—I'm happy that was said. Then he said, he said, but we all recognize, and Barbara recognized, that other people have their roads to God. But, but for Barbara, she was a Christian. Jesus is her road to God. And I thought, I said to renee and she lectured me not to be so critical. I thought to myself, how, how can you say, how, how do you say I am a committed follower of Jesus? But I don't embrace the fact that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and, and nobody, there are no other roads. No, nobody comes to the Father but by me. So it seems to me, if you're, if you're talking about being a Christian, you, you do have to buy into that in some way. I get that you might not want to say that. I, I understand that you may not want to word it just that way in that kind of a setting. But at least don't say something contradictory to Jesus. Just leave it out. There's a shame. There is a shame. That shame was attached to the way Jesus himself died. The method of the cross wasn't just chosen to cause Jesus' death. It was chosen to portray a certain kind of death. The method was this world's last attempt to disgrace Jesus as one of the worst sorts of people. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. That's the Old Testament quote. Not just dying, cursed in their dying. We sang this morning. He was despised and rejected. Never forget the first time I heard the Messiah. Something about the way the soloists, you know, the way they. they Almost overemphasize in the the, the way it was despised. He was despised. They spat on him. You ever had somebody spit on you? And here's the point. Now, this. This despising the shame thing. Here's the point. In redeeming you... Jesus rejected that price of shame. He loved you so much, he he stomped on all that shame and rejection. He stomped on all the shame because he loved you. And now here we are, just about done church Sunday morning. We're following Jesus. Jesus. We express our love for the Lord. We usually do it singing worship songs. But There's something in this text where we're being asked, as he writes to these persecuted Hebrew followers, our writer specifically ties in this element of Jesus, despising the shame in purchasing their redemption. And we show our love for him in the very same way. We, we take... We take we take every mocking word, we take every name that we're called, intolerant, divisive, unloving, dogmatic, narrow-minded, hypocritical, homophobic, judgmental. We take all the shaming effort and we stomp on it. We, we, we refuse it. We aren't threatened by it. We aren't intimidated by it. Christ's work, it overturns all the values of a fallen culture. And it embraces the inevitable scorn that it will bring. Because we understand that the one who, who laid out this race before us, he went through it all. Exactly the same thing. Here's what he did with all that shame he just did. These people are worth saving. And our Lord is worth following. And everyone said...